Today's show brought to you by Redcon1.com. That's right. Click the link at the bottom of the podcast app in which you are listening to this on. Check them out. Use promo code T20Cordimus. That's right. Redcon1.com. There's nothing special about being American. None of you can define for me what an American is. I am the nation. I was born on July 4th, 1776, and the Declaration of Independence is my birth certificate. The bloodlines of the world run in my veins because I offered freedom to the oppressed. I am many things and many people. I am the nation. I am 200 million living souls and the ghost of millions who have lived and died for me. I am Nathan Hale and Paul Revere. I stood at Lexington and fired the shot heard round the world. I'm Washington, Jefferson, Patrick Henry. I'm John Paul Jones, the Green Mountain Boy, Davy Crockett. Coming to you from the D-Tom Studios in the free state of Florida, sponsored by Maker's Mark Bourbon, this is Don't Tread on America, and I am your host, on Q. Sorry about the voice today, guys. I'm not quite up to <laughs> radio standards. <coughs> it's not that I'm sick. It's uh, was college football weekend, and there were some good games on. And uh, those of you that know me know that I am a Gators fan, and uh, my voice can tell you that I am. So <laughs> bear with me today. I'm trying to remedy this situation with a uh, new drink brought to us by the uh, executive producer of the show, Christopher J. McGillicuddy. If you guys want to find out how to make this drink, check us out on TikTok at Don't Tread on America on TikTok. Uh, the drink today is called Applejack. Not Applejacks. Don't want to get confused with Kellogg's or anything like that. Don't need any lawsuits. So uh, this is called D-Tom Applejack. Check it out. It's very good. I'm not going to tell you what's in it. If you want to find out how to make it, check us out on TikTok at Don't Tread on America. Also, today is September 5th, 2022, and is also Labor Day. So happy Labor Day to all the laborers out there, uh, me included. Because unlike most of the podcasts that you guys probably listen to, um, they're probably taking the day off. You know, they, they work hard, you know, talking so, um, so uh, you know, they had to take day off. I, on the other hand, worked a full day today, worked about nine and a half hours, was up at 11 o'clock last night, went in at about 1230 <coughs> this morning, got done around 10, and uh, rested for a little bit, and uh, here I am with you guys, so uh, you're welcome. <laughs> All right, so what is Labor Day? Now, we think of Labor Day as the first Monday in September, right? It's a three-day weekend, not for not for a lot of America, but if you work in a bank or if you have one of those types of jobs, then you probably have Labor Day off. You probably have today off, and, you know, hey, can't hate on you guys for that. Um, I'm just ragging these podcast people that are, quote-unquote, for the people, but yet they're not for the people today. Um, <laughs> this is the way I see it. I've said this time and time again. I work a full-time job, have a part-time podcast, right? 
I don't get paid to do this. This is for my enjoyment, y'all's listening pleasure. Um, but mainly, it's just something for me to do, get the stress out and talk talk to somebody about whatever. But uh, these these other podcasts, I'm talking about national podcasts that that you know they sell themselves to us as for the people. We're here for you guys. We're here for this. We're here for that. But yet they can't be here for you today to give you a show. They're going to throw a bunch of best of elements at you. I, however, go on vacation, throw a couple best ofs at you, and you guys are like crickets. <laughs> so whatever. And what what is Labor Day? Okay, so Labor Day, as we know, the basic story is it's a federal holiday in the United States. It's celebrated on the first Monday in September, and it's to honor and recognize the American labor movement and the works and contribution of laborers to the development and achievement in the United States. So um, the basic history, as we were taught, like you remember when you were in school, and you I don't even know if they teach us anymore, but we were taught about the labor labor movement and you know they were working 12 15 hour work days there was kids working in factory i'm talking small kids working in factories and you know this and that and the other thing and but basically so in the beginning of, of the late 19th century as the trade union and labor movements grew trade union is proposed that a day be set aside to celebrate labor Labor Day was promoted by a central labor union and the Knights of Labor, which organized the first parade in New York City. So the, the funny thing about this is I'm reading this off of Wikipedia. They make it sound like a, a bunch of people from these organizations got together and said, oh, let's have a parade on this first Monday of uh, September. So when you think about it, it's a random day. Like a lot of these holidays that we celebrate, a lot of these quote-unquote government, federal, whatever holidays, they just pick a date out of the hat. And, and not for nothing, we can even talk about Christmas, and I'm not going to do that today. I am going to do a show about Christmas in about three weeks. And you're thinking, Christmas in three weeks? Yeah, you'll understand when I do the show. At any rate, um, dates are picked for whatever reason. They have no consequence. So like Memorial Day, for example, Right is is a holiday to to memorialize fallen soldiers uh, throughout this country that have fought in different wars and have died. Right, but the the layman's people in this country look at Memorial Day as the beginning of summer. Right, that's what you know. It's Memorial Day weekend, it's the beginning of summer. And technically, it's not because that would be in June, but nonetheless, so we'll say, and then they'll say Labor Day ends summer, the end of summer. And realistically, it's not until the end of the middle 21st, what, 20th of September is, is beginning of fall. So technically, <laughs> it's not to the point where even when I was a kid, I remember I lived up north when I was little and uh, school ended. Um, you know, the week, the Friday before Memorial Day was the last day of school and you didn't go back to school to after Labor Day. We moved to Florida. It was a little bit different. It's changed since then. But uh, nonetheless, <laughs> these dates are picked, and and it's almost like it's, it's done in that sense. Like, oh, Memorial's the beginning of summer. Fourth of July is the middle of summer. Now, Fourth of July is probably the only date that has historical consequence, 
right? With the exception of New Year's, I guess. If if you want to base, you know, New Year's on how it's celebrated, that's Fourth <laughs> of July is a significant date in history. You know, nothing happened on on the first Monday of of uh, September. It has nothing to do with the date. You know, it just happens to be September fifth this year. Next year it'll be September sixth or whatever, right? It's not a date per se. It's it's that first Monday for whatever reason. So, um, so you know, they talk about this parade. So, when when you read this and you think, okay, um, so they had a parade first Monday of September, and now we celebrate uh, Labor Day. Well, not exactly how it works. So the labor history of the United States described describes the history of the organized labor, U.S. labor law, and more the general history of the working people in the United States. Beginning in the 1930s, unions became more important allies of the Democratic Party. Um, okay, so anyway, I'll keep going here. The nature and power of the organization organized labor is the outcome of historical tensions among counteracting forces involving workplace rights, wages, working hours, political expression, labor laws, and other working conditions. Organized unions and their umbrella labor federations, such as the AFL-CIO, the citywide federations have competed, evolved, merged, and split against a backdrop, uh, backdrop I'm sorry, of changing values and priorities and periodic federal government intervention. In most industrial nations, which is which is some why some people talk about labor unions and Labor Day, the labor movement sponsored its own political parties, with the US as a conspicuous <laughs> conspicuous exception. Both major American parties vied for union votes with the Democrats usually much more successful labor unions became a central element in the New Deal coalition. So I'm, I'm going to stop reading here for real quick because this it's true. I mean, back in the early 1900s into the mid-1900s, you, you equated the quote-unquote working man and unions with the Democratic Party. I think as time has evolved, and especially nowadays we look at it and we see that it doesn't seem to be that be the case if you if you if you get, catch my grift the um <clears throat> the democratic party doesn't seem they say but they don't seem to actually be for the working person um the democrats throughout this country two years ago pushed for lockdowns and for people to not work whereas your republican governors president pushed for people to work and for us not to be locked down. It's funny how the tables turn with these things. The Republican Party has been, has been, and has always been known as the GOP. So you hear GOP, what does that mean, GOP? Well, it's government of the people, for the people, by the people, right? Lincoln. So it always, I always found it funny that the Democratic Party was more tied to unions per se because. Um, <laughs> the history of the Democratic Party would cause you to believe that that's not true. So it almost begs to differ to to make the argument that 
Democrats have been lying forever. And I'm not saying that Republicans don't lie, but if you just think about it, Democrats pushed slavery. They were all about slavery. Well, <laughs> slaves weren't unionized. They couldn't unionize. They didn't even work for wages, right? So just in that idea of slavery in itself is anti-union, right? <laughs> just saying. Anyway, um, so what, what, see, what happened was <laughs> it is widely believed that on September 5th, oddly enough, uh, 1882, so that would be, what, 140 years ago, right? Union leaders marched in what is thought of as the very first Labor Day parade, quote-unquote. Over 20,000 disgruntled New York City workers from a wide variety of industries, such as clothing makers and railroad workers, including children, had enough of their unsafe working conditions after being forced to work over 12 hours a day in spaces that were making them sick. So these 20,000 people, they make it sound like it was a Labor Day parade, like, oh, they're marching, they got a band. No, it wasn't like that. These people, that was essentially your first strike. So these people walked out on their jobs, took, it wasn't a day off, it wasn't Labor Day, they didn't get paid to not be there. So they took the day off from pay, they didn't get paid, obviously, um, to, to protest, essentially. So this would probably be what you would consider the first strike. Um, shortly thereafter, they went ahead and made it a federal holiday. But it wasn't even necessarily about the day being off, per se. It was about the 12-hour days, the safety at work, the, you know, that's how OSHA was created and stuff like that. But um, the interesting thing about all this is, so you're talking back late 1800s into the early 1900s when your union activity really ramped up. And, and you've read about it. You've heard about it. Um, especially back in those days, it was more about like people building buildings. You know, your steel workers, your, uh, your plant workers, people working, like, like I said, build, uh, making clothes or building automobiles, uh, steel making steel beams and building the buildings in new york and chicago and wherever those those people were working 12 15 hour shifts with no breaks no lunches seven days a week they even had children as young as five years old doing these jobs in these unsafe conditions so they changed laws to enable the working person you know of course back then it was working man women really didn't work a whole lot they they were at home um and uh oddly enough in that's in those same times especially in the 50s 40s into the 50s after world war ii for a, a good while you were able to just have the man at work the wife could stay home and uh, take care of the house, take care of the kids, make sure, you know, kids got fed and got to school and whatever. Husband worked, was made enough money to provide. And and it's it's weird how, I mean, obviously we can talk about inflation, we can talk about all these things, because obviously that's the problem. But like, I don't, <laughs> I know some people are going to laugh when I say what I'm about to say, but I don't consider myself to be an old person. Okay, just turned 49. I'm not, I don't think of myself as an old man. Now, I get it when I was 20. And well, let's do it like this my son's 26. So the age difference between me and my son 
is the same as me and my dad. So when I was 26 years old and my dad was 49, I used to think he was old. You see what I'm saying? So I understand the correlation of thinking that you're old or people thinking that you're old. But when when uh, I was young and we had my daughter, I was 19, um, <laughs> I worked at Walmart unloading trucks overnight for $5 an hour. Uh, my wife at the time worked at McDonald's making $5 an hour. We had an apartment, two cars, <laughs> you know, was able to buy groceries and whatnot to the point where even when she went out on maternity leave and the baby was born, my daughter was born, she didn't go back to work right away. She stayed out. And I was still able to pay the bills. And so, I mean, it's not we lived a great life. It's like we were eating lobster and shit. But, you know, I was able to pay the rent, pay the electric, pay the bills, still had the two cars, making $5 an hour. Now, this was 29 years ago. Um, so, <laughs> it's just weird how times have changed where you can't make, one person can't make three times that amount and afford an apartment and a car and stuff like that. Um, hell, they could probably not make four times that and, and afford those things. So it's just odd how times have changed. And it makes you wonder if these days of the late 1800s and early 1900s is going to come back around. And you might be saying, what, you, what the hell are you talking about, dude? <laughs> well, this is what I'm talking about is... If you've noticed, there's a, been a large growth in union activity, and it looks like it's going to be around for a little while. This could be a resurgence of unions in this country, and and it's a little bit different from where it was 140 years ago. It's more towards the the guides of a lot of the a lot of the businesses that were open during COVID. So if you, you guys, COVID's still fresh in everyone's mind. So if you recall, you you work a job, wherever you work. So if you work in retail, especially if you work for like Walmart or Target or, or a grocery store or something like that, and if you uh, have anything to do with those stores in one way or the other, you worked, right? I didn't miss one day of work due to lockdowns or anything like that. Thankfully, not bragging, haha, I didn't miss work. Um, but there was a lot of people that did miss work and they, or they worked from home. They worked, you know, they worked remotely. If you have an office job, instead of going into the office, you might have done whatever at the house. Um, and uh, like if you worked at fast food, if you worked at a restaurant, for the most part, you were able to keep your jobs. I mean, some people lost their jobs and then some people were kind of allowed to quit. To the point where, um, you know, they were getting paid unemployment from the states, whatever state you live in. Plus, they were getting a, like an extra 500 bucks from the government. And, you know, there was a lot of people that worked minimum wage jobs that quit because of, you know, of COVID or whatever reason. And, uh, and they uh, made more money staying at home. That's kind of where we're at today with the problems we're having with some of these people not wanting to work, and even though the ones that do work or have a job, I should say, still don't want to physically work. But um, so 
in the meantime, a lot of the people like us, and I'm going to include myself in this because I'm one of those people, we were, we came to work. We did the things we did. The company I work for gave us extra money. Thanks for showing up. Here's an extra, I don't remember what it was, 100 bucks a week, I think it was. But as soon as they felt like they could get away with not paying that anymore, they did. They were, boom, quick. And uh, I think there's now a lot of people in this country that feel like they got taken advantage of. Companies, Amazon, look at Amazon's having issues with unions. They're closing down their distribution centers. Not all of them, but some of them because because of union activity. They're having issues. So I think their mindset is, Oh, you want to you want to unionize? We'll just close the dis- distribution facility down. We've got six more. Well, that's all fine and dandy, and I guess they're well within the rights to do so. I guess I don't I don't know the the rules. I don't know, but I'll say this about that: if if you work for Amazon, you work in one of these distribution facilities, okay, and you're not in one of the ones that are trying to unionize. You're in the one that's you know twenty miles down the road, whatever. Well, Amazon's still selling product. There's still people are still going on the app and still buying shit. So that stuff's got to come from somewhere. So instead of it coming from uh, distribution center A, it's going to come from distribution center B. So now, if I'm just going to spitball numbers, if each distribution center puts out ten thousand dollar or ten thousand orders a day, let's just say, well, now you just close this one facility because of union activity, whatever the case may be, those 10,000 orders are going to come from somewhere. So either they're going to split it up between warehouse B and C or whatever, right? Well, what do you think the people in those facilities are going to think? Well, shit, this is bullshit. Now we're having to work harder because those people want to unionize and they close down the facility. Well, now we want to unionize. And then warehouse C, we want to unionize and so on and so forth. <laughs> it's <laughs> You can only close so many facilities before you're going to put yourself out of business. You can't just close down shop. You can do it once, twice. You can do it every now and again. You can, like where I live in Florida, there's a crap ton of Amazon warehouses. So yeah, they could close one here and there and it probably not hurt them a whole lot. But eventually you're dumping that workload on someone else, on another warehouse. Those people are going to get pissed and they're going to think the same thing. So the, um, the, the activity is switched from steel workers and building builders and factory workers and these types of people to, a, to retail and um, restaurants. So union activity has skyrocketed nationwide from national retail and restaurant chains to distribution centers and local coffee shops. Data from the National Labor Relations Board revealed that union representation petitions soared 58% during the first nine months of fiscal year. So that's from um, October 1st, 21 to uh, June 30th of this year. With, peti- with um, petitions increasing from 1,800 to um, up to 1,900 from 1,200 during the same period of the prior year. Petitions in fiscal year 22 exceeded all of prior by the end of uh, by the end of May, <clears throat> representation petition, petitions are filed by employees or pl- employers seeking to have the NLRB conduct 
a union election. The surge nationally is being felt in the Boulder Valley and northern Colorado. Starbucks workers in Superior voted to join Starbucks, Starbucks Workers United, an affiliate of the Service Employees International Union. Workers at Greeley Starbucks uh, have also petitioned for an election. Workers at Brewing Market Coffee with operations in Boulder, Lafayette, and uh, Longmont have signed. So, um, obviously, this this article was the end of uh, Seattle. This is out of, obviously, it's out of uh, Colorado. But I'm um, trying to find it more of a national story. Nationally, workers at, uh, at an Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, New York, voted to unionize. Much of renewed activity can be traced to the COVID-19 pandemic and subsequent worker shortage. As some workers retired or left the workforce, those remaining have had to deal with understaffing, long hours, stress, and fears about health and safety. Now, I don't know about health and safety. I mean, around here, I've never worried about my health or safety in the job I do. But understaffing, yes. Long hours, yes. Stress, I think stress is probably in my opinion, is the biggest of all of those. Because the way I make my money is by selling goods. Okay? Fine and dandy when people are getting free money from the government. Okay? This year, there's no free money. And prices of everything are going up. Right? So people aren't buying as much stuff as they were last year or two years ago or four years ago for that matter um so that's causing stress in our workplace so you feel like you're abused you got taken advantage of for two years you know it's the same thing kind of like with the nurses and the doctors oh these are frontline heroes and look at they did covid and then they got treated like shit on the backside because some people wouldn't want didn't want to get the uh the vaccine Right, it's the same, similar situation. Not the same, but similar. So, work shortages are being felt in every industry, from hospitality and service sectors to high-tech occupations. As evidenced by extremely low employment rates, it means that workers' concern about workplace conditions come up with other another element, and that's power. Employers have heightened incentive these days to respond to workers' issues, with the cost of replacing workers extremely high in very difficult areas with near full employment. See, now here's where I'm going to say this about that. So you guys are probably familiar with the term quietly quitting. I was watching the news today and and someone said a different term and it's called quietly firing. Now, what's the difference? So quietly quitting is if you work at a job and you, let's say two, three, four, whatever years ago, you, you were there, you came to work every day, you were on time you busted your ass the whole day you were there. No questions, no whatever. You know that Don's going to come to work. He's busting his ass. Right? And that's much how I am anyway. So I'm going to use me as an example. But you see at workplaces where other people that work wherever you work and you come into work and you bust your ass, but this person over here might call in. Or they might shorten their shift. They might not do the work that they're supposed to do. You're over here busting your ass. They're over there, quote unquote, quietly quitting. It's not they're quitting. They're still coming to work. They're still getting a paycheck. They're just not putting the effort in for the paycheck. In the meantime, it pisses other workers off. 
So that's where it reverses from quietly quitting to quietly firing. So in these situations, you have workplaces that are making it life so difficult on the workers by them not allowing them or not enabling them, I guess, to make the money that they're accustomed to making. Somehow or another, however your pay structure set up, however that works, they're finding a way for you to not make your money. So they're quietly firing you. Well, how does that make sense? They're not firing you. No, but what they're doing is they're pissing you off enough to the point where you're not going to get fired, but you're going to quit. So it's not necessarily quietly quitting because you have people that work in all sorts of different industries, whatever industry you work in. If it's hospitality, retail, whatever it is, you and you might even be one of these people. I could be talking directly to you and you know who you are, that you come into work every day and you bust your ass and you still feel like you're getting shit on daily. You're quietly firing yourself because you just say, fuck this shit. I want to quit. You start looking for another job. And maybe that's not the answer to the questions Maybe we don't need to quit, quietly fire ourselves. We need to quietly fire the other people. We need to quietly fire the bosses that are not doing anything. We need to, maybe we need to get back to what happened in the late 1800s to the early 1900s. Maybe this is the answer to our problems. I don't know if it is, but maybe it is. There are people in different areas of this country that are taking a stand against their employees, employers, yeah, Amazon might come out and close a facility here and there. Eventually, they're not going to be able to do that. Eventually, the greed of the corporation is going to overtake the, the willingness to close down facilities. You can't keep closing them because guess what happens? You're going to stop making money. And we all know that these corporations are 100% about making money. They're not going to, to quote a phrase, cut off their nose despite their face. Eventually, they're going to have to fix the shit. I don't work for Amazon, so I'm not talking about me with Amazon. I am talking about me in other situations, and I'm probably talking to a lot of people listening to this podcast. So I encourage you to figure it out. I think the time has passed. We've, we've, a lot of us have been dealing with these issues for a couple of years now, for at least a year and a half, two years, no matter what level of industry you work in. And you've talked to your boss. You've talked to their boss. And things just don't seem to be getting done. Because they don't care. And it's self-evident that they don't give a shit. And for the most part, what it is, is you work for corporations that stopped promoting from within and started hiring college kids. And I'm not saying all college kids are morons and idiots and they're lazy. But a lot of them are. Okay? When you stop promoting from within, you get away from those people that did the job. Understand the pressures and the stress of what you're going through. Now you have people that have no idea what you're going through because they never did the job. And that's where we're at in this problem. We've taken the, the degree over the experience. Now, maybe it's the old man to me talking like, this is bullshit back in my day, blah, 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 whatever. It's the truth. And you guys listening to this know what I'm saying is real. All right. <laughs> Sorry to 
going for a 30 minute diatribe about that, but it's near and dear to my heart. All right, on to breaking news. All right, Judge grants Trump's request for a uh, special master in the document search. All right, so real quick. Legal victory for former President Donald Trump. Federal judge on Monday granted his request for a special master to review documents seized by the FBI from his Florida home and also temporarily halted the DOJ's own use of the records for investigative purposes. The decision by U.S. District Judge Aileen Cannon authorized the court, or I'm sorry, authorized an outside expert to review the records taken during the August 8th search and to weed out from the rest of the investigation any that might be protected by claims of attorney-client privilege or executive privilege. Some of those records include ultimately be turned returned to the Trump, um, but the judge put off ruling on that question. Of course, this judge is going to come under a lot of scrutiny because she was appointed to her position by who? Donald Trump. So there you go. DOJ had a response on the matter. Just before I started recording, they came up with a response. The United States is examining the opinion and will consider appropriate next steps in the ongoing litigation. So what do you think that means? They're pissed because they can't do anything now. They can't look at this stuff. They can't do anything. And anything they have done is null and void. So here's my question. People say, why does Trump want to you know, a, uh, what's it called? A special master. Why does Trump want that? And then I guess the second question would be Trump wants an independent source, blah, blah, blah. Why is the DOJ disputing that? Why are they going against that? So it's, it's much in the way of two kids fighting over a cookie. You know, if you want the cookie, you're not going to ask if, if Trump's doing something wrong, if, if this is the way I look at it, if Trump did something wrong, if he knows or feels like or has a sneaking suspicion that he did something wrong, do you honestly think he wants to get more people involved? Now you could say, well, why didn't he just turn over the stuff? He was turning over the stuff. He was. This was all a publicity stunt. This has nothing to do with anything more than what I've been telling you guys for the last couple of months. All of this has nothing more to do with than for Trump to not be president. They give a shit less if he gets prosecuted, he gets brought up on charges. They don't care about that. They just don't want him to be president. Okay? Now, the DOJ is considering appropriate next steps, right? So what does that mean? They're probably going to uh, appeal the decision. Why? If what you feel you're doing is just and that you have proof and you know that what Trump did was wrong, if that's your idea then you shouldn't care. You would want a third opinion, right? That way you know it's right. You know, you go to a doctor, you don't like what the doctor says, you get a second opinion. If that doctor says the same thing, then, okay, you're going to go with that because, the, the, you know, you have two parties. What is it like the uh, the Trident commercials? Remember back in the day, I don't have to make Trident come anymore, but nine and ten dentists, blah, 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 right? Oral B, uh, three out of four dentists, blah, blah, blah. That's what it is. This is the third dentist. So just let the fucking special master judge, whatever it is, go in there, do their thing, and and go from there. Jeez Louise. <laughs> uh, 
And obviously, like I said, this this has been going on for a month. Very few, fluid situation, and we're just going to let it keep developing, and we'll talk on it a little bit here and there as it goes. So, <laughs> I found this clip uh, this morning. Now, this is Trump. Uh, it's it's on Twitter here. It says, Trump's anti-electric car rant is really something. So, let's go ahead and play this, and, uh, and then I got something on the backside here. Oh, when I was in office... Gas was $1.87 a gallon. And we weren't talking about going to all electric cars, which are twice as expensive. I mean, the problem is, a friend of mine wanted to do something for the environment. He went out and bought a electric car. And he made a certain trip, I won't say from where, Kentucky. I won't say from where. And he's a good person. He wants to do what's well. Now he understands <laughs> not so good. And he bought an electric car, and he made the trip often from Kentucky to Washington, and he made it, and he'd drive down and put the car away and drive back. He was getting, like, 38 miles a gallon, and he's fine. And then he goes to hybrids and all the other things they can do. But he wanted to go all electric because he wants to save our country, he wants to save the atmosphere. And he called me, he said, I'm exhausted, why? He said, this damn trip took me forever. I'd drive for two hours and then I'd have to have my car charged. And in two cases, I couldn't find a place to charge it, but even if I could, it took me more time to charge the damn car than I could spend in it driving. So, <clears throat> pretty funny, it's true. You buy an electric car, it's not like a gas station that's on every corner. There's not charging stations on every corner. Now, granted, you buy a Tesla or whatever, and I think, I'm sure it's extra, but you can get a charging station for your house. Okay, it's all fine and dandy, but what happens when you leave? If that car only has a 300-mile range or 200-mile or whatever it is, you got to pray to God that within that range limit, there's another charging station, and those aren't on every corner. You can go down the highway wherever you're going. We went to Kentucky on vacation. I didn't take an electric car. We uh, rented a Dodge Durango for our trip. <laughs> Fuck gas mileage, right? And uh, lo and behold, every exit on the highway, there was a gas station. <laughs> you know what I didn't see at every one of those gas stations? Charging stations. So the interesting thing is this. So you, you have California. So, California <laughs> has over 30 million uh, registered motor vehicles of all types. Cars, trucks, uh, you know, and I'm talking everything. Uh, buses, cabs, everything. Everything that's registered through their state that has a license plate, over 30 million vehicles, right? Just, just under 2% of those <laughs> are electric, so like 500 and something thousand are uh, electric. <laughs> so, you know, using the state's own estimates, California will need 17 gigawatts of additional electricity to power all those electrical vehicles. And uh, the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant, which the state has tried to shut down, does 2.3 gigawatts. And they're trying to shut it down. So you might be asking, what does that matter? Who cares? Fuck California. Okay, I get that. 
there are people that listen to the show that are from California. So I want to throw a couple things at you real quick. So California has a lot of vehicles. Oh, <laughs> I'm trying to find the other thing I had here. Uh, where's that? Maybe it's here. Okay, so, um, you know, the chart shows vehicle registration counts, all electric cars. So, if, um, damn, I, I don't have the friggin' story. I had it earlier. The, um, I guess I'm gonna just spitball this one. <laughs> so, you had, uh, a situation where just this past weekend, right, didn't they, uh, have a, a electric emergency, right? So how in the hell are you going to sit there? Uh, Newsom comes out and says this was la- uh, it was here last week or week before. Comes out and says um, by twenty thirty five, the state of California will no longer sell um, gas powered vehicles. Now that's a long time from now. I mean, it's not as long as you think it is. It's only 13 years. But, you know, when you think of it, it's a long time from now. He won't be governor. He probably, hopefully, will be of no consequence to any of us. So, bold statement, whatever. But we're going to use his words. By 2035, gasoline-powered vehicles will not be allowed to be sold in California. Okay. Gas stations. They're, they're halting any building of gas stations. In that state. Okay. And then the following week, this past week, they had a electrical emergency and they asked Californians to not charge their cars. So I don't know the exact population of California. 30 million registered vehicles. I know all of those aren't one car per person, but I think they're population is somewhere in that range of 20 to 30 million probably 25 give or take million people you have 500 and some odd thousand electric vehicles in a big state now that's not all in los angeles or wherever that's throughout the whole state there's only 500 out of 25 or so million people whatever the population of california is (laughs) let me see if i can population of Cali of California is 40 million people 39 185 we'll just say 40 so of the 40 million people that live there you have a smidge over 500,000 electric vehicles so what's that uh point <laughs> oh you know two not even percent um you, <laughs> those 500,000 cars can't be charged because we're having electrical issues. We're having a heat emergency. We're having this and we're having that. But yet in 13 years from now, you are going to allow no uh, gas-powered vehicles to be purchased. So 2035, 13 years from now, they're not going to wait to 2035 to enforce that i mean they're going to start you know ford chevy and whoever else is going to stop selling gas-powered vehicles in that state you're going to have owners of gas stations you're going to have exxons and chevrons and whatever gas stations are out there stop selling gas they're going to switch over to 
you know, electric charging stations, whatever the case may be. So even though it's 13 years from now, it could be eight years from now that it's in effect. You know, your gas stations are going to be far and few between. You know, I'm sure now I've never been to California, but I'm sure in some of these bigger cities and towns you drive through and there's gas stations on every corner. There might be three or four on every corner. And uh, it might get to one or one every other corner or one every other mile. You see what I'm saying? They're going to force you to buy an electric bill because you're going to have no way to drive the gas-powered vehicle. But in the meantime, they're going to say you can't charge it because we can't even produce enough power for our 40, billion, uh, 40 million uh, residents and their 500,000 electric vehicles now. But we're going to try and force, so eventually I would assume, over that time frame, those 30 million whatever registered vehicles that are in the state will have to no longer exist and you're still going to need 30 million vehicles. You're still going to need buses and cabs and whatever. Instead of those being gas-powered vehicles, they're going to turn to electric. You can't charge 500,000 cars now. You're going to charge 30 million? Hmm. And this guy wants to be president. God help us. <laughs> God help us that this guy even sniffs the White House. All right. So, obviously, our show that we did on Friday was our DTOM Files uh Part three of false flags. So hopefully you guys have listened to it, started listening to it, but uh, continue to listen to it if you haven't. Uh, didn't get a chance to talk about the uh, the speech from uh, President Joseph R. McGillicuddy. So I'm going to play this little snippet from the speech, and then uh, we'll talk about it on the uh, backside. Mr. Dascom, what we need right now is a clear message to the people of this country. This message must be read in every newspaper, heard on every radio, seen on every television. This message must resound throughout the entire interlink. I want this country to realize that we stand on the edge of oblivion. I want every man, woman, and child to understand how close we are to chaos. I want everyone to remember why they need... Oh, shit, that was a wrong speech. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. That was a scene from V for Vendetta. Here, here's the actual speech. I'm sorry, real quick. And now, America must choose to move forward or to move backwards, to build a future or obsess about the past, to be a nation of hope and unity and optimism, or a nation of fear, division, and of darkness. MAGA Republicans have made their choice. They embrace anger. They thrive on chaos. They live not in the light of truth, but in the shadow of lies. But together, together we can choose a different path. Right. We live on chaos and violence. And as you give a decisive or divisive speech on MAGA Republicans and Trumpians, and you're, you're literally spewing division. Every word you spoke was about division. So there's some been some outtakes, obviously, on his speech and the optics. Not even so much what he said, or I shouldn't say so much, but not even what he said, but where he said it and what was going on in the background. So um, this is from uh, 
John Jonathan Turley. Now he is a law professor from somewhere. I can't think of this. I, I, I want to say Cal Berkeley. I'm not sure if that's correct, but we're going to go with that just to, just to say a school. <laughs> so he does a blog. So um, I, I'm going to I'm going to paraphrase a lot of what he wrote. I'm not going to read it word for word, but anyway, the speech has received no. <laughs> So in, in his blog, he goes, so the speech received sharp, diff, uh, sharply different reviews from disgusting and hateful to historic declaration of war. And that's funny. I shouldn't say funny. Those are ironic words. Historic declaration of war. Because when you listen to the speech, it's like he's talking about an enemy, like he's talking about Russia or China or Iran or whoever. He's not. He's talking about us. He's talking about 70-something million people that voted for Trump. He's talking about people that have guns. He's talking about the people listening to this podcast. War against the enemies of the state. That's us. He's looking at us. These 87,000 IRS agents that were hired to do audits and reviews and whatnot. Those for us. Okay. So you have some people like on MSNBC regular and writer of the nation above the law, Eli Mistel, instead of that speech did not go far enough because all Republicans are white supremacists, not just the quote unquote MAGA Republicans. I thought the speech was devices, divisive and inflammatory. However, it is not the content, but the optics of the speech that was particularly unsettling. So, if you saw the speech or if you saw pieces of the speech, you saw he's in front of Independence Hall, in front of, you know, uh, Beelzebub's, you know, altar. So framing Biden were two Marines standing like nutcracker props in a highly political speech. His use of Marines and the Marine band violated longstanding rules for shielding the services from such political events. So Biden's speech in Philadelphia has produced sharply different responses. On CNN, it was praised as rallying cry for patriots. Now they're calling these people, his followers, patriots. Can you believe that shit? <laughs> On conservative sites, it was denounced as hateful and divisive. For many of us, however, the optics, the glaring distraction, the red background and prominently placed Marines frame, framing the president, the use of Marines in the Marine Band raised concerns given the clearly political purpose of the speech indeed the networks did not view the speech as an address to the nation and refused to give the white house primetime slots while white house press secretary Karine jean pierre assured the media that it's not a political speech it was unbashingly political from calls to get the vote out to direct attacks on maga quote-unquote maga republicans and donald trump that again raised the legal question over the use of the marines in such a speech even CNN flagged the concern over the use of the Marines, and the CNN chief White House correspondent, Caitlin Collins, stated the obvious that it was a very political speech. The optics of the speech in, in, instantly became a source of Internet chatter with the weird red background that made the president uh, look, where is that, blah, 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 from a speech from Dante's Inferno, indeed, it also had a that the high chancellor, this is the clip I played, <laughs> Adam Salter from, look from the V from Vendetta. I mean, if you watch, if you've ever seen the movie V from Vendetta, it's on Netflix. I encourage you guys to watch it. It's, it's 
It's a good movie, and it's very eerily familiar to what's going on. Um, however, it was the use of the Marines guards that stood out the most, framing the president as he declared Trump supporters to be a threat to democracy. Um, we live in a republic, but, you know, that's fine. Biden denounced MAGA Republicans 13 times, as well as repeated references to his past and possible future political opponent, Donald Trump. The speech was obviously political, as noted by CNN's Collins as a full frontal attack on his political opponents. The United States has long drawn a line between the work of federal employees in such public service and the use of such employees for political purposes. The Hatch Art, um, sorry, the Hatch Act was passed in 1939 to cur curtail the political activities of civilian federal employees. The Marine Corps expressly forbids personnel from being used or participating in such political events. It reads, quote, active duty members will not engage in partisan political activities and all military personnel will avoid the inference that their political activities imply or appear to imply the DOD sponsorship, approval or endorsement of a political candidate, candidate campaign or cause, end of quote. The other surfaces also draw a bright line, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, it's, it's obviously that he is drawing a line in the sand against people like us. And this started last year with the, the parents at the, uh, the school board meetings and stuff like that. And you had Merrick Garland come out and talk about these parents as enemies of the states and a threat. <laughs> concern for our kids, concern for our country, regardless of who we vote for doesn't make us a threat unless you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing. And we all believe that that's the case. This country, I, I've often talked about civil war, and Chris and I have talked about it personally. And when you talk to regular people about civil war in this country, everyone, obviously, we only have one reference point, and that's the civil war back in the 1860s, right? This civil war, and I'm not saying if <laughs> there's a civil war in this country. I said this civil war, when it comes, because we're, believe it or not, folks, we are currently in the cold stages of a civil war. So you remember back in the 80s and, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, we were in a cold war with Russia. So cold war is, means it's not hot. We're not fighting. It's, it's talk. It's rhetoric. It's coming out in front of a red background and demonizing your political opponents and their followers. That's what a Cold War is. You recall Reagan back in the 80s talking shit about Russia. Russia did the same thing. That's a Cold War. It's what happens. It's a war of words. But eventually, sometimes, those war of words and those cold wars become hot. And it's not a war of words, it's a war of people. In the 1860s, the basic history of, of civil war was uh, the government wanted to end slavery. The South said, fuck that, we don't want to end slavery. We need these people to work our fields. And they were like, cool, you can have them work your fields. You're going to have to pay them. They're like, fuck that, we're not paying them. I mean, that's the Cliff Notes version. That's essentially how it worked out. So then you had states secede from the Union, South Carolina, Tennessee, 
Georgia. You know what I'm saying? And the government, i.e. Lincoln, didn't want this. So the <laughs> believe it or not, the Civil War itself wasn't necessarily about slavery. It was about these states succeeding from the Union. It's true. I mean, yes, in a roundabout way, it obviously did have to do with slavery. But the initial action wasn't necessarily about slavery. It's not like you had the southern states from, you know, wherever it was, Kentucky down, say, we're keeping our slaves in the northern states from whatever up. You're not keeping your your slaves. We're invading. It didn't, it wasn't like that. It's kind of the dummy version of that's how people believe it happened. It's not exactly how it happened. The government passed a, a law saying slave owning is no longer allowed. Southern states were like, bullshit, we're owning these slaves because we need them to work these fields. The government said, pay them. They're like, no. So you had states succeed from the Union. Not all at once. You didn't have all southern states leave. It was one by one, right? And then the government said, no, you're not allowed to do that. It's in the Constitution, blah, blah, blah. And they went to war. That same thing can happen. It's not going to be about slavery, but it's going to be about this type of shit. You could very well see a situation where it gets to a point. I'm not saying tomorrow, but it could be sooner than later. Where we get to a point where Florida succeeds, Texas, Georgia. You know, will they make a coalition of southern states again? Could it run, you know, South Carolina to Texas? Everything in between. Um, the problem is, <laughs> and I, I can't speak on this exactly because I don't know how it was back in those days in, in the South or in the North for that matter, but I can imagine that not 100% of the people in the South were about it. And I can't imagine that 100% of the people in the North were against it. You probably had people in the North that felt that the we could own slaves and i'm sure you had people in the south that felt we shouldn't own slaves and that we shouldn't succeed i'm sure you had that case but the voices that wanted it were louder than the other ones in every state that you live in you could feel some way you could listen to this podcast and feel some way about the things that are going on in this government and the way we're being treated as people and feel some sort of way but you could live in a state that's like you know, fuck your feelings. We we hate Donald Trump and we hate all quote unquote MAGA Republicans. Or on the flip side, not that I imagine many liberals are listening to the show, but if you live in a state like Florida and you're like an ultra liberal, you might be like, I don't want, I hate Donald Trump and he's this and he's that. But you live in Florida, <laughs> you know. So you very well could see a situation where you start seeing people leave. You're going to see people leave Florida Texas, Georgia, that feel some sort of way, they might move to California or to wherever. Because it's going to get hot sooner or later. Um, so, <laughs> believe it or not, what do we talk about? History has a way of repeating itself. Okay, well, it's been 160 years since the last Civil War. You look at throughout the world civil wars in different countries and it doesn't have to do with slave owning like we think of civil war we automatically think of slave owning because that's what happened here but in other countries 
it's not about that. It's a lot of it, a lot of civil wars throughout the world, and there's civil wars that go on all the time. There's civil wars going on in different parts of Africa. You know, you had a civil war in Serbia. You have a civil war in Ukraine, essentially. That's what that is. That is a civil war. The fact that Russia is involved doesn't make it not a civil war. The Donbass region and people in Ukraine that don't want to be part of Ukraine, that's what that's about. That is essentially a civil war going on. We're being sold a bill of goods in this country that Russia is invading that country. That's not how it is, guys. Do some research. Essentially, <laughs> I really don't want to get into a fucking hour plus show, but here we are. Um, civil war in America. North versus South. Slaves. States didn't like it. They seceded. Do you know who was pushing and financing the South to do what they were doing? England. Why? Because they were still pissed off. You had the Revolutionary War in the seven, late 1700s. You had the War of 1812. They were still pissed off. They believed this country was theirs to the point where if they felt that they could finance the South to do go against the Union, that they could come in and clean house. It's what Russia's doing. It's the same fucking thing. Okay? In other countries, in, in uh, Congo, in different places in Africa, it has nothing to do with slave owning. It's the, it's the government. It's the militia. It's the military. You know, taking over the government. You have a civil war. You have unrest. There's a lot of stuff going on in this country. We look at it, obviously, we just think of us, and that's really all we should care about is us. But a lot of these same things are going on around the world. It's eventually going to come to a head. I just hope you guys are ready when it does. All right, guys. That's all I got for you today. <laughs> I really didn't think I was going to go this long, but here we are. All right, guys. So anyway, I finished my Apple Jacked. D-Tom Apple Jacked. Not just for breakfast anymore. If you want to know how to make it, check it out on uh, Don't Tread on America on TikTok. Also, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Don't Tread on America. And on the Twitter machine at DTOM underscore 1775. And we also have a website, don'ttreadonamerica.com. Check them out. And guys, please, most importantly, whatever podcast app you're listening to this on, if you could please share this with your friends, give us a good rating, and uh, subscribe. Subscribe to the show. Follow. That way you get updates and you get uh, podcast notes when they uh, pop up. All right. With that being said, guys, it's Labor Day. September 5th, 2022. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. And I will talk to you again later in the week. I don't know that I'm going to do a show on Wednesday because the wife is off. Like I said, I don't get paid to do this. This is activities, but I, I like spending time with my wife. So I might, might get a show together somehow or another, pop it up Wednesday. But if you subscribe to the show, you'll know that. If not, I'll talk to you guys again on Thursday. Other than that, you have a great day. And, uh... I'll talk to y'all later.